0: Good afternoon and welcome to the Iowa City Foreign Relations Council's presentation by Professor Jerry Schnorr. We're pleased to carry this out today in, co- in collaboration with the Johnson County Chapter of the United Nations Association. Thanks to everyone who has joined us in person today, and thanks to all of you who are joining us via City Channel 4's live stream. I'm Katherine Whitnaben, Executive Director of the Iowa City Foreign Relations Council. We thank our members and supporters who have renewed their annual membership in ICFRC, and we invite those of you who have not yet renewed or have not yet joined to visit our website at ICFRC.org. That way you can join or renew your membership. This is really important to us. Over the last 38 years, we've provided high quality international programs at no cost to our community, so your support is really important to our ability to continue to do this. We have two very special sponsors today to thank for their support for this important program. Dorothy Paul and Alan Swanson from Blank and McCune Real Estate. Thank you, Alan. Alan's here today. Both are long-term members and supporters of ICFRC, and we really value their friendship and their support. So thank you. We also want to thank our annual sponsors and our organizational supporters. Midwest One Bank, which includes the use of this lovely conference room for our in-person programs this fall. The University of Iowa's International Programs. The University of Iowa Honors Program the University of Iowa Public Policy Center, and the Stanley UI Foundation Support Organization. We also thank City Channel 4, and especially Ty and Lily for their support in live streaming all of our in-person programs this fall. We also thank City Channel 4 and the UI Digital Libraries for making all of our programs available online to everyone. We are also grateful to the Iowa Arts Council for their financial support to the Iowa Department of Cultural Affairs. The Iowa City Foreign Relations Council has adopted the Native American Land Acknowledgement prepared for the City of Iowa City's Ad Hoc Truth and Reconciliation Commission and Human Rights Commission. We recognize that our home community of Iowa City now occupies the homelands of Native American nations to whom we owe our commitment and dedication. There, Iowa City was within the homelands of the Iowa, Meskwaki, and Sauk, and we, because history is complex and time goes far back beyond memory, We also acknowledge the ancient connections of many other indigenous peoples here. The history of broken treaties and forced removal that dispossessed indigenous peoples of their homelands was and is an act of colonization and genocide that we cannot erase. We implore the Iowa City community to commit to understanding and addressing these injustices as we work towards equity, restoration, and reparations.
1: Thank you, Catherine. I'm wondering if it would be all right with those here in the audience if I remove my mask when I speak. Thank you. So, yes, indeed, I am Jim Olson. I'm the president of the Johnson County Chapter of the United Nations Association. And I want to begin by thanking the Iowa City Foreign Relations Council and all of the sponsors for hosting this, our observance of United Nations Day. Uh, we, We value our partnership with ICFRC and look forward to continuing that partnership in the years ahead. Next Sunday, October 24th, is United Nations Day. United Nations Day marks the 76th anniversary of the day when the UN Charter came into effect in 1945. UN Day is an opportunity to recall the ideals stated in the UN Charter, to reflect on the UN's achievements over 76 years, and to recommit to the ongoing and huge unmet agenda. Our Johnson County Chapter of the United Nations Association is an affiliate of the United Nations Association of the USA, a national, non-governmental, Nonpartisan non-partisan membership movement calling for constructive U.S. leadership in the U.N. Here in Johnson County, we aim to inform and give voice to those who urge the United States to collaborate with the other 192 U.N. member states to advance human rights, international security, climate action, and humanitarian assistance. More information about our organization is available on our website, which is johnsoncountyuna.org. All one word, johnsoncountyuna.org. For United Nations Day 2021, there is no more important topic than the global climate emergency. The words climate and environment do not appear in the UN Charter And yet, today, 76 years after the founding of the UN, the world body is working in various ways to address the global climate crisis. The UN collects and disseminates the best climate science around the world, especially through the work of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. It provides a framework for climate diplomacy, and it aids countries, especially developing countries, to uh, mitigate the impact of climate change and to adopt policies for a cleaner future. Today, we're focusing on the upcoming Glasgow Climate Summit, formerly known as the 26th Conference of Parties of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, or known as COP26 for short. We are delighted that our speaker is Professor Gerald Schnorr. Professor Schnoor, or Jerry as we know him, holds the Alan S. Henry Chair in Engineering. He's a professor of civil and environmental engineering, and he's the co-director of the Center for Global and Regional Environmental Research at the University of Iowa. Jerry's research interests include water quality modeling, aquatic chemistry, and climate change. He is a registered professional engineer and a member of the National Academy of Engineering. Over the years, Jerry has not only contributed to the emerging body of climate science, but he's also monitored the work of the United Nations. He has attended several UN conferences, including the 21st Conference of Parties, held in Paris in 2015, which produced the Paris Climate Agreement. We're fortunate to have in our midst someone who is not only contributing to the body of climate science, but one who is also an advocate for action to address the climate crisis through the UN system. So please join me in welcoming Jerry Schnorr.
2: Is it okay if I remove my mask to speak? Thanks, we don't have to worry about the uh, people on live stream, but I appreciate your uh, allowance. As Jim said, the Conference of the Parties 26 is the 26th meeting in a row of all the people who signed up uh, for the original United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, and that was back in 1992. Uh, in uh, Rio de Janeiro and uh, I was very fortunate to uh, be present at that meeting under the auspices of the United Nations Association. And we took, uh, I think, 13 students or more. Dorothy Paul, who's one of the sponsors of this meeting today, a dear friend was there, Katie Hanson and many others. It was uh, quite an interesting meeting. The biggest issue was, will George Herbert Walker Bush attend the meeting? And he did. And he was actually somewhat supportive. And we became a, a, a signatory uh, to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. And we still are today, after a brief hiatus of a few, of a few days uh, prior to the Biden uh, presidency. I've been at all the major meetings uh, through time, and it's very interesting to see how things have changed. In particular, the the scientific background data, the uh, United Nations uh, IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, has issued six reports beginning in 1990. And those six reports, it's been quite interesting to see how the verbiage has changed, how the scientific certainty has become greater and greater and how the many lines of evidence that prove that climate change is due to humans and our burning of fossil fuels, how that has uh, aggregated through the time since 1990. I'll tell you just a little bit about that because it's part of the story on the road to Glasgow, COP26, which begins on actually November 1st, uh, coming up in just a couple of weeks, and is a very important meeting. Maybe even uh, rivals the Paris Agreement of 2015 that Jim Olson uh, mentioned, in which I was also a delegate at, and uh, it was a very exciting uh, meeting, but now we have to go further. This is the big blue marble that we're trying to protect. One of the lessons of my students is just calculate the mass of the atmosphere, the thin veneer that maybe you can't even hardly see it on this shot from space. uh, The thin veneer is actually pretty small mass. And when you have 7.8 billion people on Earth and a gross world product of, what, 80 or 90 trillion dollars each year, that much activity, that's going to be the first reservoir that you look at, that humans are going to change, and indeed we've changed it. It, The chemistry of that thin veneer around the Earth being held by gravity towards the center of Earth, uh, that is uh, not stable. Uh, It's not uh, constant. It's continuously increasing in greenhouse gases, which act like a blanket. Uh, covering up the earth. If you would have told me when I was a student that in my working lifetime, okay, 45 years is a long time, but it's not geologic time, Uh, in my working lifetime, 45 years, we'd be able to uh, warm the oceans and uh, acidify the oceans in such a short period of time, I would have said you're crazy. Because even with my engineering uh, training, I knew the thermal mass of the oceans is so great and uh, going down on average four or 5,000 uh, meters, uh, I knew that to acidify it would be uh, very difficult, but we've done it. And uh, that's why we're in a, our 26th meeting, trying to talk about what to do about it. The main problem is that the red arrows going up, that's the fossil fuels on the left that we're burning, and the deforestation and land use changes, Uh, the red arrow in the middle, those arrows are greater than the black arrows coming down, going into the ocean, being absorbed by the ocean, causing the acidification of the ocean, and also uh, into the forests, the woody biomass and the soil organic carbon uh, that our forests so kindly do for us. Because the red arrows are bigger than the black arrows, we're accumulating our exhaust in the atmosphere. It says in the very middle of the slide about 16.4. That's billion metric tons. 16.4 billion metric tons each and every year are accumulating in the atmosphere. That's a lot of greenhouse gases to put into that thin veneer. And we're not uh, running out of fossil fuels anytime soon. We can't even burn all the fossil fuels that are in proven reserve right now, but we are running out of a place to put the exhaust from those fossil fuels. The atmosphere, we just can't do it any longer. We're now at 415 parts per million in the atmosphere. It's gone steadily up in our lifetimes. Actually, steadily up ever since the Industrial Revolution began, and we discovered the steam engine, and we began to burn copious quantities of coal, more than 200. Uh, Years ago when you put more and more greenhouse gases into the atmosphere you know That you're going to have an effect on the energy balance of the earth Like putting a blanket around the atmosphere and the temperature is going to increase on The y-axis here. This is the temperature difference since before we think we were really changing the uh, climate Uh, on earth so if you'll notice ever since about 1970 especially uh, it's been dramatic the 70s were warmer than anything previous 80s warmer than that 90s warmer than that 2000s you get the picture and in fact the green line if you can see it kind of on the right hand side of the slides the green line uh, indicates that it's rising rather linearly About 0.18 degrees Celsius, that's about 0.3 degrees Fahrenheit, each and every decade. Very linear. So it's getting warmer and warmer and warmer Ever, ever since the 70s. We think that's when the greenhouse gas effect really started to kick in. Well, emissions are another story that ever since the Industrial Revolution have just gone steadily up. Uh, And uh, only last year, due to the pandemic, did we have a little blip in which it went down, uh, it says uh, here, 6.7%. But you know what? It's already back up again, not shown on this slide. Emissions are still increasing globally. And what we need is for something like the blue line on the right-hand side, that's how fast it has to come down so that by 2030, what they're meeting about in Glasgow is at least a 45% decline by 2030, shown here, the 2030 goal, and by 2050, net zero, out of the fossil fuel age. It's been a good run for 200 years. We've powered our transportation, done all our manufacturing, heated our homes, everything by burning fossil fuels, and it's gotta come to a close. It doesn't have to be onerous, it can be the engine, the creative engine for economic opportunity and jobs, quality jobs for our students, for our kids, and our kids' kids, but we must do it. It'll become increasingly apparent, as I think it is right now, Um, a recent report uh, this week, shows that 99.9% of all scientists believe that climate change is a serious problem and that it's due to humans, 99.9%. And I sense a change in the mood of the public, too, uh, in the United States, much more accepting that, yeah, we got to do something about this. I was fortunate to be a delegate, uh, actually a media, uh, official member of the media at the Paris Agreement in 2015. It was a remarkable meeting. Never before have and something like 194 countries agreed to anything before, and they agreed that climate change is a serious problem. It's difficult to get that kind of agreement. And they agreed that the most vulnerable countries, the ones that are already being affected, like island nations, uh, drought-stricken sub-Saharan Africa, coastal nations with tropical cyclones and hurricanes. These folks need some transfer payments. And that it has to be substantial. It's called the Green Climate Fund. All the nations signed and agreed on those two points for the first time. No real teeth in it. I mean, the United Nations can't really legislate uh, policy at the national level, but there is soft law, there's the peer pressure of countries on countries saying, look, we're all in this together, if I act, maybe you will act also. So two major things, we call the emission reductions that were pledged nationally determined contributions, NDCs, that's just UN, Parlance for pledges to reduce emissions Every five years we're supposed to renew those pledges and ratchet by by our bootstraps Ratchet up and improve the situation Paris was clearly not enough even at the time Uh, I wrote this article in the lower right hand corner at the time that I Thought we were heading towards about 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit even if we could implement Uh, the, I'm sorry, 2.7 degrees Celsius, that's about uh, five degrees Fahrenheit warmer, even if we could implement entirely the pledges that were obtained at uh, Paris. So it's not enough. We need to go further. And uh, Glasgow is really just a continuation of the Paris uh, climate agreement that remarkable uh, agreement that we were able to achieve. Because no new, uh, no new treaties will be signed. Uh, it's really to try to enforce what we already agreed to uh, and to gain momentum for what was already known at the Paris Agreement in 2015. There's been a lot more scientific uh, evidence. A recent report by the IPCC Uh, Secretary General Guterres says it's a Code Red for Humanity report. We are running out of time to begin to address this. And uh, the language has changed since 1990 when I first taught a climate change course. Now uh, it is unequivocal that human influence has warmed the atmosphere, ocean, and land. Unequivocal. I had to look that one up. That means unassailable. That means uh, with certainty that we know uh, it's due to humans and we have to do something about it. Our carbon dioxide concentrations right now are higher than they've been in at least two million years. So uh, it's certain that this is due to burning of the fossil fuels. The concentration of methane and nitrous oxide, two other very important greenhouse gases, are the highest they've ever been in over 800,000 years. We know from direct measurements from ice cores that these are the highest concentrations in 800,000 years. And the temperature is the highest it's been in at least 2,000 years. The temperature lags these other Uh, predecessors the the greenhouse gases so first the greenhouse gases are launched and they last a long time in the atmosphere each year heating a little bit more and then the temperature follows right now we're sort of waiting for the other shoe to drop for the full effect of the change in temperature as a result of these gases that we've been emitting for the past five decades or more The language has changed. It's uh, not only unequivocal, but the recent changes are widespread, rapid, intensifying, and unprecedented in thousands of years. The report says that unless there's immediate rapid and large-scale reductions in greenhouse gas emissions, uh, the goal from Paris was to limit warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. That's about two degrees Fahrenheit I'm sorry, uh, that's about uh, almost uh, 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, but the warming so far we've had is about 1.1 degrees Celsius. That's 2 degrees Fahrenheit. So average over the whole Earth, over all the seasons, we're about 2 degrees Fahrenheit warmer than we were, let's say, in 1950 or so. The Paris goal is to keep it uh, to 1.5 Celsius, but the current trajectory, as I told you, is indeed about five degrees Fahrenheit warmer. If we warm the Earth to five degrees Fahrenheit, average over all the places, average over all the year, it will be an earth that we have never imagined living in. It will be an earth that civilization and human development, with agriculture being only 10,000 years old, it'll be an earth that we've never experienced and one in which our development did not ever take place. It will mean massive repercussions. There's no going back, I'm sorry to say, some of the changes that we've experienced already even at just two degrees Fahrenheit warmer, some of the changes are almost irreversible. For example, to the extent that climate change has uh, caused the loss of species, they're gone forever. Climate change isn't the most important factor in, in, in that uh, problem, that we're losing maybe 25% of all species in our lifetime, but it is a contributor. Habitat loss, clearing of land, deforestation is still number one, but all kinds of things seem to be playing a role, even including the bug zappers in your backyard, uh, zapping all the insects. Insects are way down. So are amphibians, reptiles, birds, and many other species. When we lose them, it's not like Jurassic Park. It's not like the movie. We're not saving all that DNA uh, to revive it later. It's gone forever. But many things can be reversed. The, the temperature, the warming can be uh, reversed, but first after the emissions are decreased. And ice sheets take thousands of years to build up. We're losing ice sheets now in Greenland and in Antarctica. That'll be on the order of thousands of years to reverse and repair those. The carbon dioxide concentrations in the ocean and the acidification of the ocean, the decline in coral reefs, that's on the order of many decades. So first we have to decrease our emissions. Then we have to allow for the recovery of the planet, and it will happen. Much of it is reversible. Some things not. You know, we're following kind of uh, the yellow line here on this graph of emissions on the y-axis versus time, going out to 2100. If we're following, according to uh, calculations, the the orange or yellow line in the middle, it's going to be many decades before we begin to stabilize uh, the climate. We'd like to follow, according to the COP26 meeting, we'd like to follow the blue line, if you can see it, in which we have yeah, roughly half emissions in 2030, so soon, and net zero emissions around 2050. We're talking about a transition, unprecedented in human uh, civilization, and it will not be easy. There are some benefits, however. Because the, there's a long line in the lag in the uh, climate system, the greenhouse gases that we've put up there in the last decades are going to warm for many more uh, decades. Carbon dioxide is more than a hundred year lifetime. Uh, uh, in the, and each year it warms some more. So in order to recover and stabilize our temperature, uh, here you're seeing even if we do the blue line, the goal of COP26, that's at the bottom, we're still talking about 2050 or 2060 before we're able to level off temperature. So this is something that needs action now, and the ramifications will take place in a few decades. This slide, I think, is kind of interesting. uh, Let me try to explain it. On the y-axis is the temperature anomaly. That's how much it's warmed since uh, Industrial Revolution. And you can see it's about 1.1 degrees Celsius now, the end of the gray uh, color. And that's about two degrees Fahrenheit now. For us to do COP26 and what's at stake here, that's the 1.5 degrees Celsius goal, we would be traveling along the blue area. And the blue area says that our total emissions on the x-axis can only be about 500 gigatons more. Well, each and every year, we're putting out more uh, more than 40 billion metric tons gigatons each and every year so it tells us right off to keep the temperature from becoming 1.5 celsius we need we only have about 10 years left so we we must begin to reduce our emissions if we're going to stabilize the chemistry of the atmosphere and and the, and the climate. Hopefully a turning point is COP26 in uh, Glasgow. Uh, You can monitor all the proceedings, you can register uh, to do it uh, online. More ambition is needed, 197 countries are coming. Uh, They are talking about a 45% reduction by 2030, and net zero by 2050. Maybe most interesting uh, for the public, I think, is the issues that are actually being discussed. Of course, one is the Green Climate Fund. We're short, uh, it's estimated that the vulnerable countries, like island nations, like the Maldives, who are already moving people from islands uh, being inundated by storm surge, already affected, they need uh, these countries, the most vulnerable, who did the least, to cause climate change. They need about $100 billion per year to, uh, in new developmental assistance, not old, but new developmental assistance, $100 billion per year. We're short of that, considerably short of that. The best year was 2019, and I think it was about 79 uh, billion. So we're, we're far short of that. We need to raise more money. That'll be a big issue at COP26 in Glasgow. They're talking about rules in international finance and carbon trading. And uh, deciding on these rules, it's tough uh, negotiations, again, to get everyone to agree. Can you imagine if every international financial loan by the IMF or by the World Bank, every loan had to have a carbon statement associated with it? How is this loan going to affect the carbon budget and emissions uh, on Earth? And if it's in a negative sense, too much, you can't do that loan. Out it goes. That's what is at stake. That's what's being talked about. Can you imagine they're talking about phasing out coal on a schedule soon, and, and phasing out soon, Oil exploration. Why should we be exploring for more oil when we already have, in proven reserve, more than we can possibly burn on that previous graph I showed you of about 10 years? The oil in the ground right now alone, mostly owned by international oil and gas companies, there's some uh, national ones, but mostly marketed, independent com- companies, those uh, amount to about $4 trillion. So out of that $4 trillion, in proven reserve, maybe we can burn $1, billion, $1 trillion with a T, we're talking real money here, and $1 trillion, this is really gonna be stressful and difficult negotiations. We're talking about stranded assets, what the economists would call of several trillion dollars. Keep it in the ground. These are, as you can imagine, tough negotiations. Why should we build a Dakota Access Pipeline with a 50 or 75 year lifetime when we have to be out of the fossil fuel business by 2050 at the latest? Why should you build something like that? Why should you invest in something like that? Why should you be able to raise money for something like that? But we did it. Every one of those things uh, comes into question in a future. The US position, as you know, is President Biden wants to be a leader. He had a climate leaders summit not long ago, uh, an online one, a virtual one. He's bringing 13 cabinet members with him, unprecedented in all of these meetings that we're talking about. But uh, it comes at a time when his own, the second uh, infrastructure, the social infrastructure bill, which has many names actually, but uh, we'll call it Build Back Better here, is threatened. Senator Manchin wants all the coal provisions out of it. Those are the provisions that would allow Biden to sign on to the COP26 agreement uh, to end uh, coal. U.S. plans, uh, our speech is better than our, our talk is better than our walk. Right now the U.S. says that uh, according to business plans, we will have a 17% increase in oil production and a 12% increase in gas by 2030. So we're still going up. We haven't even leveled off our, Emissions, well, the U.S. has, but we're still planning to go up and burn more fossil fuels. But what, what does Biden say? He says global fossil fuel production must start declining immediately and sharply. So our talk is much better than our walk. And it weakens his position as a leader coming into a big international meeting like this. John Kerry is actually our Chief uh, Delegate to COP26. He was very instrumental in the Paris goals. I saw what he did, uh, and quite persuasive. He says this is the last best hope for humanity. And once again, all all 20 of the G20 countries are not meeting their pledges even under Paris, and that's not enough, but they're not meeting their pledges, UK is doing the best, we need a 26% decrease in greenhouse gas emissions uh, by 2030, and we now are heading for a 16% increase in emissions. So we're far, very far off the mark. Putin and Xi Jinping are not going to go to um, COP26, that, that's bad because those are two of the largest emitting uh, countries. Historically, it's been the U.S. On an annual basis, at the moment, it's China. We need China to be involved in the agreement. We need Xi Jinping to see himself as a leader, like what Boris Johnson wants to be, and like what Biden wants to be. But it isn't setting up that way right now. We need no more coal power by 2030, that's the OECD provision being discussed at at, uh, COP26. We need zero emission cars uh, completely by 2040. No more oil development, no more oil exploration first, and then it would be followed on a later timeline, no more oil production, and uh, President Xi Jinping is an important player in all of this. So we might ask the question, where are we going? Where does the future lie? Nobody really knows because the different colors on this graph spaghetti diagram of all 34 models that are being run to see where we're going, it's different scenarios, different international policies being followed. Again, the blue at the bottom is where we need to go. That's the uh, emissions versus time. And by 2070, we'd have a completely stabilized climate. We would begin to be going back to uh, a norm less, than, less warming than we have experienced already. But if we're following the orange and the yellow, as I said, uh, it's going to take much, much longer than that. Climate action and climate solutions. Uh, I think you know the the, the issues. Uh, mostly electrification of of most everything, and generate that electricity with wind and solar. And yes, maybe nuclear. I don't think nuclear is going to help us very much in that first 2030 uh, next 10-year period. That goal because it takes too long to site and permit. Uh, nuclear power plants, but I don't think we can rule it out. If you believe this is a serious problem, and I do, then we have to consider new, modular, safer uh, nuclear power plants as well, I think. We're talking about electric vehicles and battery storage for them. We're talking about public charging stations. We're talking about a smart grid, a much expanded grid. And uh, pricing associated with the demand uh, so that you can fill up your uh, battery when the price of uh, electricity is low. We're talking about weatherizing homes. We're talking about creating millions of high-quality jobs in all of these sectors mentioned earlier. Good things are happening. I was talking earlier with people. uh, One thing, there's some massive reforestation uh, projects going on. To me, this is the most natural way and the best way uh, to have negative carbon emissions. Let's just replant what we've already deforested. And there are projects going on. In the Gobi Desert, China is trying to replant the Great Green Wall to prevent desert, uh, desertification of uh, Beijing. The African Union uh, has joined together in a sub uh project in sub-Saharan Africa to reforest the desert that has formed there on the south side of the Saharan Desert. And there's some success, as you can see uh, here, to reforest. In Iowa, what it calls upon for us is some type of regenerative agriculture, one in which we have a more diverse crop rotation, like maybe that we had in decades past. No tillage, fewer pesticides and chemicals, putting animals onto the land as a part of the uh, recycling, the, the manure, and keeping organic carbon sequestered into our Soil, managed grazing, cover crops, buffer strips, grass waterways, prairie strips, all make sense for Iowa to play a part and a role in net zero emissions. Most of my economist friends say that we won't be able to do any of this without a much higher price on uh, fossil fuel emissions, on carbon. They say that because carbon is not paying its externalities. The real cost of a gallon of gasoline, I have my students calculate it's not $4. It's something like $15. If you count all the health effects, the smog, the visibility, the materials, damages, not to mention troops in the Middle East to protect supply lines, it's vastly underpriced. In a Pigovian tax, my economist friends tell me it's sort of like a sin tax. You have to pay for those externalities, raise the price, disincenting the use of fossil fuels, and encouraging the use of renewable, solar, wind. Who who owns the wind? Who owns the sun? Nobody. 50% of the expenses of the utilities with coal-fired power is in the fuel, in, in making long-term contracts for the coal or the natural uh, gas. No more fuel costs when wind and solar is no more. You never have to think about that again. It's a much, much better situation. Putting a price on carbon then incentivizes economies of scale for wind and solar. They'll be much more purchased, and therefore the prices will come down. It's only maybe that way that we can really get it done. We have a bill in Congress, it's HR 761. It's not going anywhere right now, I must confess. But uh, it's the idea of a carbon fee and dividend, returning the, the, the tax, at the port of entry of the oil, or the point of production, returning that tax uh, that's collected by the government to each and every uh, citizen. If you use a lot of energy, emit a lot of carbon emissions, you're gonna pay more, because there's a tax on it now. But if you are maybe uh, in... uh, uh, disadvantaged uh, class, or lower income, or very environmentally astute, you're gonna pay less. You're gonna, you're gonna actually benefit from this carbon tax, uh, and you'll be much better off. The air will become cleaner, health will improve. I testified before Congress a few years ago how we have good data that for every microgram per cubic meter of a decrease in particulate matter, the fine particulate matter that gets right down into your lungs, it causes both cardiovascular disease and uh, pulmonary disease, both heart attacks and asthma, both. When you decrease it, even one, and we could easily lower ours by 10 by following COP26, by 2050, we're talking about 750,000 people living who would pass otherwise. Particles in the air are very bad. It'll be a much, much better world if we can transition out of the fossil fuel age. Wildfires would decline. Remember the campfire a couple years ago in Pasadena, all the people who perished trying to get out in their cars Uh, with very little chance for egress. Strength of hurricanes and storms will decrease as a result of COP26. Last year, we had 30 named storms, a record. Remember, we had to go into the Greek alphabet. 13 of them hit the U.S. coast, also a record. We had Hurricane Laura, the most expensive storm ever. Poor... uh, um, um, lake charles louisiana got hit three times in 2020 including hurricane laura 150 mile per hour winds it spun up very fast because we've warmed the oceans the oceans are warmer the the temperature of the gulf was about 88 degrees fahrenheit which fueled hurricane uh, laura it spun up very fast hit with 150 mile uh, per hour winds uh the Oceans are warmer, that causes more evaporation. The air is warmer, that holds more water. So here in Iowa, we get most of our weather in the summer and, and uh, early fall from the Gulf. And so uh, the hydrologic flywheel is spinning faster and faster. Global rainfall rates are increasing. And wet areas like Iowa are getting wetter. And we're gonna get more wetter in the future. The IPCC report tells us that. So intense precipitation events that cause flooding like we saw in 2008 in Cedar Rapids. What we've seen in Cedar Rapids is almost the 100 year flood is now a 25 year flood. So it doesn't occur once in 100 years. It will occur this type of flooding once in every 25 years. That will decrease if we get a handle on climate change. Somehow, some way, we hope, and the reports don't do a very good job of quantifying this, but we hope to avoid tipping points. There's possibilities where, we call it abrupt climate change, where things could change very quickly. And some of those, uh, I know it's a comical slide, but it wouldn't be comical for humanity if we, the permafrost in Alaska and the Northern Territories melted fast, releasing more and more methane as a greenhouse gas. There's some indications that that could happen. Uh, it's, not, uh, it's abrupt climate change when, if ice sheets would begin to break off Antarctica very fast, thus these are glaciers moving at glacial speed, but when you break one off, you free up the space for the next one to break off. And all that ice is contributing to sea level rise as well. I won't go into all the tipping points, but it's another reason why we must do something like COP26. We need to listen to each other somehow, in this country especially. I'm thinking again of the Dakota Access Pipeline of the Native Americans beating and drumming and singing, and we didn't listen to them. We never really listened uh, to them. And we built a pipeline that is going to last 75 years, and we can't possibly use it. Maybe we can retrofit it for hydrogen, a hydrogen-fueled economy. We need to realize that people who suffer the most are those who did the least to cause the damages and to listen carefully. So, I conclude today, my friends, it's a much better world that we will achieve uh, by uh, climate action, by responding to this threat that we now see quite clearly, and we have some policy mechanisms, like COP26, to try to to implement it. It will result in a better world, social justice and social equity, a cleaner, healthier, fairer, and more resilient uh, lifestyle. The United Nations, uh, I don't know what we would do without them, at least we're talking about the problems that really represent improving the entire human condition. We're talking about everything. We're talking about life on Earth, not only humans, but the ecological well-being, which affects our well-being. And these actions, uh, if it weren't for the United Nations, I don't know who would be bringing us uh, together. Thank you very much. I'm open for questions if there are any. Thank you.
1: We're now going to move on to the question and answer portion of the program. Uh, for those of you here in the audience, if you'd raise your hand and wait for the microphone to be brought to you. And for those of you who are watching us live, you can text your question to three one nine six zero zero two five eight eight to ask your question. And I think I saw a hand already.
0: I have two questions actually. The first one is um, you say almost 100 percent of scientists believe in climate change. Do you know of any percentage that's been um, surveyed of people just broad citizenship of people who believe in climate change.
2: The last poll I saw said 70% of Americans okay, uh, believe that it's a serious problem. They're, they're, the cause differed among, in, in those 70%. Some think it's, it could be natural, uh, but many think it's due to humans. But 70% think it's a problem and we have to do something about it.
1: Okay, thanks. And, my and, second- I, and I
2: sense a movement there, don't you? I, I think that's a happy... Uh, statistic.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and my second question is, might sound a little bozo, but um, if we need the carbon emissions to stop, if we need oil exploration to stop, it, you know, we pay farmers not to plant certain acreages. <laughs> Maybe we need to pay the oil companies
2: not to explore. <laughs> that may not be palatable to everyone, but, know, but it it is uh, the kind of incentive. You know, the, the, this stranded asset is a is a big problem because it's going to affect Congress. They're all worried about keeping their jobs, and the oil companies are are big uh, uh, donors uh, to politicians. So the, the stranded assets of all the oil, coal, and gas that we cannot burn uh, that. That's a big issue, and I like that you're thinking out of the box. We might have to incentivize the oil oil and gas companies.
0: Thanks. Uh, Jerry, can you talk about the um, uh, news out of Russia that uh, in Siberia there are these methane leaks that are visible uh, from space that... Uh, uh, are pretty dramatic uh, when you see them, um, but I'm just wondering how, uh, how serious an issue that is.
2: It's a great point, and it's a very serious issue. Uh, and it's not only Russia. You know, we've seen an increase in methane from satellite uh, remote sensing. We can see the leaks now from our own fracking operations and our own flares uh, in this country as well but Russia is the world's largest gas producer, and uh, it's a big part of their foreign policy, as you know, with the new pipeline going to northern uh, uh, European uh, countries, and methane has, pr- CO2 is still the the biggest problem, burning of fossil fuels, that's maybe 65% of the energy effect, but uh, methane is increasing very fast, and. Uh, we thought uh, about three decades ago. We thought it was leveling off, but now it looks to be going up. That corresponds with fracking and the new uh, gas uh, exploration, including uh, in including in Russia and the and the and the U.S. And so we need to get a handle on that. It also could be the clathrates begin. You know the permafrost issue. We use carbon isotopes to make that differentiation. The last paper I read indicates that they, they all could be contributing to, the, the, that is the uh, uh, animal agriculture, uh, all ruminant animals, so what's that, cows and, and sheep, and um, the biogenic release from Alaska and the northern territories of clathrates as permafrost melts, But personally, I think, most of all, it's due to the gas exploration. It's a big problem, and increasing.
0: This is a question from one of our live stream viewers. Will running pipelines for burying carbon dioxide make a dent, or is it a ploy to delay the inevitable phasing out of fossil fuels and ethanol?
2: Gee, these are great questions. I wish I knew the answers, but um, definitely the Dakota Access Pipeline was a no-no. We shouldn't have ever done that. But now you're asking about the new proposal in Iowa for a pipeline to collect the carbon dioxide from ethanol plants. That's a good place to collect carbon dioxide because it's very concentrated there in the fermentation process, so that part makes sense. It would decrease the emissions from our ethanol industry. It may not be answering the question, but to me it comes down to, if you believe that ethanol is gonna continue to be a part of the economy, and Congress indicates that it will be, for the next few decades, then we gotta decrease our emissions 45% by 2030, so I could be for it if it was done well. If the eminent domain, which is a better case than the eminent domain was for uh, for the Dakota Access Pipeline, Uh, so if they treat the farmers well, they really give them uh, what their uh, land is is worth in the in any lost productivity, uh, I could be for it, reasoning that ethanol is going to continue to be a part of the national policy it's not going away soon and if that's true we need to decrease the emissions of that fuel
1: hi jerry i think uh we've heard a couple times the issue of uh where beliefs come into conflict with climate change and obviously we can't have beliefs in the first place if we don't survive. So I'm wondering if you think that, um, do you think that we need to rethink how we interact with our democratic principles in order to address this challenge?
2: Wow. I think we need to rethink how we interact with each other, and my second to the last slide was about that, truly listening uh, to each other. But one of the controversies right now, as your question implies, is my Chinese friends, I have students in uh, China, the big discussion over there is uh, there's some smugness that they have the best system, uh, an authoritarian regime, with a leader who believes in science, as opposed to a democracy which seems to be stalemated and unable to uh, enact any public policy that really helps the public other than people staying in office. Um, I think we do have to question our current democratic uh, values. I'm not sure that's where your question was going, but uh, we're. We're not, we're not really doing it right now. We should end on something happier, Catherine. You wanna say something happier? <laughs> yeah, uh, so um, the other good thing is you know that uh, here in Iowa we had 57% of our electricity provided by wind energy last year. It's created thousands and thousands of jobs. If Iowans can't see the benefit of this transition, Nobody should be able to see it. So maybe, maybe we can be a leader and really, and really, it starts here. Thank you for that question.
0: First I want to thank Jim Olson and the Johnson County Chapter of the United Nations Association for your support for this. And then I want a big thank you to Professor Jerry Schnorr. As always, he's a fabulous speaker and I know you all really learned a lot. I know I always learn. Every talks, so thank you so much. And I know you probably have a whole collection of these mugs now. With City Formulations Council, but here's a small. I do, but but I have
2: lots of students too. So so
0: thank you so much for today.